Today on Osteobites, we're speaking with Dr. Daniel Prince of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center on regenerative surgery for bone sarcomas. MIB Agents Osteobites webinar and podcast present the latest in osteosarcoma treatment, research, innovation, and hope. Our panel today includes 2021 MIB Agents Junior Board Member and OsteoWarrior Brandon Friedman and 2021 Junior Board Member and Osteo Sibling Annika Vallejo. I am your host, Ann Graham, OsteoWarrior and Executive Director of MIB Agents. So welcome to Osteobites, everybody. It is our 40th episode today. The, which is just insane. We started doing this because of COVID and we thought we'll do it for a couple of months. And um, and here we are, four, 40 episodes in, which means we have a great library of osteobites amongst lots of different great experts and topics. So definitely check those out on YouTube or on our website. Um, in the meantime, of course, it's osteobites. So I know I brought my snack. I think I'm the only one. Dr. Prince, I bet you didn't bring your snack. Well, I have snacks. Okay, good. Good on you. Chocolate, Uh, always. Chocolate, yes. I brought my M&Ms, chocolate-covered almonds, you know, celebrating 40th. Um, And uh, in addition to delicious snacks today, we are joined by Dr. Daniel Prince, and uh, he will be talking to us about regenerative surgery for bone sarcomas. Uh, Dr. Prince did my diagnostic biopsy in uh, 2010, and I since used that as my claim to fame. Um, that and you know, Dr. Healy did my limb salvage surgery. So, um, all right. So, Dr. Prince is an orthopedic surgeon from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. He is on the MSK Kids team, specializing in the care of children, adolescents, and young adults with bone tumors and other diseases of the bone. His research and expertise is in bone regeneration which relies on the body's natural ability to regrow bone after a segment of that bone is removed during cancer surgery. Really cool. Uh, In the meantime, I'll also tell you about MIB Agents. We are a pediatric osteosarcoma nonprofit dedicated to making it better for a community of patients, caregivers, doctors, and researchers with the goal of less toxic, more effective treatments and a cure for osteosarcoma. MIB makes it better for kids with osteosarcoma in three ways, through direct patient and family support with many programs to ensure that no one walks alone through this disease, through education, including our annual factor conference, Osteobites, testing and research directory, and our book, Osteosarcoma, From Our Families to Yours, and through research by funding it, sharing it, and supporting researchers and physicians who undertake it. With that, Dr. Prince, would you get us started by introducing yourself, please? Thanks, Anne. I usually uh, say my claim to fame is that I was happen to be a part of your diagnostic biopsy. <laughs> and also that I get to work with Dr. Healy for that particular, not just for that case, but for several years now. So I think we're on the same like wavelength there. Uh, thank you very much for the invitation and the introduction. It's really quite flattering. Um, I am uh, an attending at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Uh, I've been here for about seven years now. Before this, I was at the Paley Institute for Advanced Limb Lengthening in sunny West Palm Beach, Florida. Sometimes I wonder in the middle of winter why it is I moved back, but I know exactly why I moved back. And hopefully I'll be able to show 
that later in the rest of the talk today and in our conversation, it's really my enthusiasm and I was able to do what I really wanted to do in life and how many of us are lucky enough to be able to say that. Um, I, before that, I did a couple of fellowships. I did a fellowship in orthopedic oncology, of course, here at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And then I did a fellowship as well in limb lengthening and reconstruction, as it's called. It's a bit of an odd name and it's a bit of a catch-all kind of uh, fellowship in probably what best can be described as complex uh, orthopedic reconstructions. And that's a lot of the foundation for where I learned how to do a lot of what I do now. Um, and that time frame, it was more applicable to other specialties. It wasn't really used for oncology. Um, and so that's sort of where I branched off and I you know, really tried to apply it as much as I can, almost as often as I can in oncology. Uh, prior to that, I did uh, my re orthopedic residency at Columbia uh, here in New York City. Uh, before that, I went to medical school at Yale. And before that, I went to college at the University of Notre Dame. And I had to go all the way back to there because as a Notre, as a domer, you can't not mention the University of Notre Dame or they take away your alumni card, I think. Uh, but no, it's also, I'm uh, equally proud of everywhere that I've been along the way. And I think like everybody else, I would never be standing or sitting where I am rather if it wasn't for every little part of the journey. Um, I'm originally a New Yorker. So I, although I've strayed at times in my life and obviously played with the concept of being a snowbird at a much too young of an age, uh, I am back in New York City uh, and happy. I was born and raised in Queens, New York. Um, so as, as was stated, uh, I, my focus both clinically and from a research point of view is in, uh, I guess it's probably the best term is bone regeneration or something of the sort or biologic reconstructions. Um, and a lot of the, my focus is on young adults. And obviously most of, as we all know, the vast majority of patients with osteosarcomas, you know, uh, teens and, and uh, you know, sorry, from all the way from five, all the way up to an adult practice. Uh, just to be clear, this uh, surgical technique is something that can be done in adults, full grown adults. It's not something that only can be done in kids. And I think we'll have a chance, hopefully I'll have a chance to go into that a little bit further. So thanks very much for having me on and I hope I can answer some questions and talk about something that's a bit unusual and a little esoteric, but I'm happy to be here. Hi, uh, my name's Annika Vallejo. I'm 22 and a junior in college. Uh, my brother Ian had osteosarcoma from 2015 to 2018. I'm a junior board member and I'm really excited about this talk. It sounds really cool, so. Hi everyone, my name is Brandon Friedman. I'm also an MIB uh, junior board member. Uh, I was diagnosed in January of 2019 and finished treatment in October of 2019. And I was lucky and fortunate enough to be uh, treated by Dr. Prince's colleague, Dr. Healy. You know, I guess the first question is that many people have asked, uh, would ask is, you know, why do I even need to do what it is that I do? What's the purpose of it? Um, for those who might know a little bit about it, and I'll talk more about it, is it is a complicated, it's a very different type of reconstruction than what we normally do. It is certainly more complicated. It's, uh, well, it's a, it, all of this is complicated, so I shouldn't say that, but it's a lot longer of a recovery. That's for sure. Whereas most surgical recoveries are, you know, a few months and it's not easy as it is. You know, these are recoveries that take two years. Sometimes it takes two and a half or three years to really make a full recovery. And so the question is why even bother? What isn't what we do now really good and isn't it already very successful? And I would say the answer is yes. And we're not reinventing the wheel. 
Um, but I think as technology and modern and, and medical knowledge advances, I think we have an obligation as well to advance and to try to give patients the, not just a really, really good uh, outcome, but a great outcome. And I know it sounds cheesy, but I think like many of us who, you know, who uh, all of us, I should say, who are listening to this, the goal of, the, of treatment is to get people back to normal whatever that means, or as close to normal as we possibly can. And I often tell people the goal is to let people live the life that they wanted to without a lot of in, you know, in limitations, a lot of restrictions. And that can mean lots of things, the kind of job that you're interested in pursuing, the kind of hobbies you like to do, the kind of vacations you like to take, and like kind of, after, you know, and activities that you want to be a part of. And, you know, I, th I think everybody would acknowledge all of those things are really, uh, you know, tremendously important to our overall, quote unquote, outcome or satisfaction. And, you know, I, I think that that's the, that's the goal that we're looking for is to try to get, especially young adults, back to the point where they can hopefully uh, resume life before, you know, at least from a functional point of view and, uh, you know, like they would have before all of this started and that they wouldn't, sorry before all of this and that they would not have uh, had to change their plans too much, perhaps as a result of having been diagnosed with uh, osteosarcoma or cancers. So as everyone can see here, overall, the survival, thankfully for osteosarcomas has certainly improved through the years. You can see there's been an incremental increase. This line is looking at this, these graphs is looking essentially as, as you can see from the bottom, every few years, there has been improvement and improvement in terms of the long-term outcome, thankfully, for osteosarcomas. Now, we also know that we love that line to really make a dramatic improvement at some point. And I will be honest, I, as a surgeon, there's only so much that I can personally do about this, right? A lot of this really does require advancements in chemotherapies and other types of therapeutics other than surgery. So sometimes, you know, I... I fear and worry, we all do, that the, the reconstructive part, I don't want to say it's esoteric because I do think it's really fundamentally important to people's function and their satisfaction and outcome. Um, but we all know that the chemotherapy is what saves people's lives, thank goodness, right? And we need, to make, we need to get better chemotherapy. We made huge advancements 30, 40 years ago, but we haven't made a significant change, unfortunately, in that. We haven't made a blip in that, really, as you can see, even from this curve in a long time. And so while I'm going to talk a bit about how to make the function better. Unfortunately, thankfully, maybe I should say that, rephrase that. Thankfully, surgeons have been doing a really good job. Like, you know, folks like Dr. Healy and everybody else that we all know about, and you're, you know, any patients out there, surgeons, you know, the leaders in the field 30, 40 years ago have thankfully established great surgical principles and techniques that work, meaning we can get the cancer out with very good success and that does not in negatively inhibit you know, negatively affect someone's chances for survival. But again, I, I think everybody wants to see an improvement in the overall survival, obviously. So since as I said, I'm not a I'm not a medical oncologist. I don't sit behind a lab and come up with new drugs or things like that. I'm a surgeon. What I can do is some make the surgery better. And so that's why I focus on a better surgical reconstruction. Um, I would even venture to say that as, as modern chemotherapies get better, we're probably gonna look, although everybody, we, we certainly want cure and that's the goal for every single patient. I would not be surprised like many other cancers and many other, let me rephrase that, sorry, like many other cancers, 
we hope that cancer can become a chronic condition exactly the same way that diabetes is or heart disease is, meaning that there's enough chemotherapy options out there or better yet, an immunotherapy option out there that's a pill that you take or something that you only need maybe every so often that can keep your cancer under control to the point that the cancer is no longer threatening your life. And you can continue to live life taking a you know, stable, taking a medication for as long as, you know, as long as possible or forever. And that, so the idea about a chronic control, I think is probably something that we, I'd hope to see in my lifetime as a physician. And I think that's where a lot of the newer treatments and therapies are going. Um, and that, again, that in and of itself would be a great uh, improvement to what we currently have. So why, why do better reconstructions? The short answer is two very simple answers. Patients literally are outliving their current reconstructions, meaning that the types of implants that we use now, unfortunately, they're great, but they're made out of metal. And just like any great car, whether it's a, you know, like a BMW, over time, it's going to wear out. The parts will wear, and then the parts have to be replaced. And then the replacement doesn't happen until folks are older. And that was where the challenge really comes in. So yes, we can get people over their initial cancer and, and cure them, thank goodness, of the cancer. But you know, the, the sequela of that is something they have to live with for the rest of their life. And so if they have a what we call a mega prosthesis, as many people out there know, those, you know, those things unfortunately are over time are prone to failure because they wear out. The other aspect of it is, like everything else, people want to do more, right? They want to be able to do more than ever before, whether that's someone who has cancer or someone who doesn't have cancer. And so there's not only are patients outliving their current reconstructions, they're actually outperforming and they, they are able to do more than that. And, and the reconstructions is what's holding them back from doing sports like running and jogging and, and soccer and other things like that. And I hope I'll show you how we're able to make a difference in that. So, you know, this is a young girl, as you can see, everybody, by the way, in this uh, has consented to use of their pictures and their and videos in this, so just to be clear. I don't want osteobites to get in trouble either. Um, so you can see, you know, this young girl, is, this, she had surgery on her right leg and you can see she, after surgery, she's able to literally put her leg behind her head. I couldn't do that now. And, you know, she's able to do that after having a resection of, a, from a, of an osteosarcoma from a distal femur because she underwent a biologic reconstruction. So you can really stress on it. Um, here's hopefully, a, I, hopefully a good vi this video comes through. So this is, oh, this is another young girl who is in the process of undergoing this complex reconstruction. So even though the reconstructions take a long time, again, it shows that patients want to, they don't want to be limited by the fact that they had a cancer or they have cancer. They want to go on. And so that girl had an external fixator, which I think we'll talk about from her thigh down to her ankle. And you can see she's doing sports at, in camp and she's ziplining. And I think I have a couple of videos of her because I, I ask all my patients to send me videos when they're doing cool things so that they can hopefully show others and inspire other people. Um, so why, why, why do this? And I'm going to share one example. I don't want to belabor too much, but why do we need to do better surgeries? You know, we have really good current options in terms of what works. As I mentioned, you know, endoprosthetics or mega prostheses, they are solid. They work for many, many years. They're instantly ready. There's no delay time. There isn't this two-year recovery. It's about a three-month recovery, maybe six months, you know, depending on how extensive the surgery is. But after that, you're up and out and you're moving along, okay? Um, same thing with a lot of these other types of reconstructions. Allograft is cadaver bone and com com combinations of all of these things have been done for a long time. I put, a, I put amputation on there and though I realize that some people 
will think about amputation as if it's a, a failure or not the optimal goal. I would actually argue that in reality, the long-term results of amputations are excellent. And as prosthetics get better and better and robotics and computers and batteries come into these into play with prosthetics, I actually think that uh, prosthetics might be our best competitor, so to speak, when it comes to the types of reconstructions that we do, because I think everybody's probably seen the Paralympics where you know, patients with below the knee and above the knee prosthetics can run a hundred meter dash much faster than you know, many, the vast majority of folks who have two quote unquote normal legs. So again, I, I realize that that's not the goal initially when we start off, but I think a lot of it, you know, we all have to realize that it's, it's more than just about one or two, you know, this is, as we all know, going through osteosarcoma is, is so complicated and the whole process is difficult that um, amputation when done properly and in the right setting absolutely is still the right surgery to be done for some people. And I would make the exact same point when it comes to this biologic reconstruction that I'm gonna talk about. It, I wish I could offer it to everybody, it's not possible. And a lot of, and unfortunately in reality, it's only available for a minority of people because like everything else in New York City, it's about location, location, location. And the tumor and the resection of the tumor has to be in the right location or I can't do what I can do, unfortunately. So as it says there, you know, the big problem with these big metal prosthetics is that over time, the longer you follow them, the more you use them, the more you, they wear out, the higher the rates of problems are. And that's the case, whether you're a young person, whether you get chemotherapy or you didn't get chemotherapy, though, of course, that certainly complicates things, or whether you're, you know, uh, an adult and you don't put that much use, quote unquote, on your, on your implant, it's still, things can still come up. And so I'm gonna just show again, a quick example of a, of a young man who was about 35 when he had his initial surgery. Um, you can see here, he had what's a very typical and an excellent uh, type of reconstruction, it's a distal femur replacement with a compress anchoring device here held up at the top. Um, and that worked great until it didn't work. And unfortunately the implant failed because the bone broke. Um, so after that happened, then the patient had to have a revision surgery. And normally this works really well, but one of the other things that we all worry about when you have these big metal implants in is that the more often you do surgery, the more likelihood there is to get an infection. Unfortunately, every time you do surgery on anybody, you're rolling the dice. And that if, even if it's only two to 5% of the time, if you have enough surgeries, unfortunately that can certainly come up. And infections in you know, these big metal implants is almost as a much of a setback and a life-changing event as the original surgery can be, because oftentimes it requires at least a couple of surgeries, weeks of IV antibiotics, time in the hospital to try to get rid of these infections. And that's not a guarantee when you have these big metal implants in there because the bacteria, they love to stick to these metal implants and they literally wall themselves off against the implant, inside the implant in our immune system and the antibiotics can't get to it. So you have to take everything out oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes you take everything out to be able to put new clean equipment back in and that will do it. But that's a huge setback for people, unfortunately. And it's not just, you know, sometimes it's not just once that you have to do it. Sometimes uh, every time you do any kind of surgery, the next surgery becomes more complicated. And that revision surgery, as we call it, unfortunately, the best chance you get with any surgery is the first chance. And so the revision surgery never lasts as long as the first one does. So in this gentleman's case, he has this, for example, this implant in, which is a, 
he's a young guy, so it's a press fit, meaning that the intention is that the bone is going to grow into this metal implant and really fuse the two pieces together. The bone grows into the metal and it becomes an extremely strong and solid connection. Unfortunately, though, things can happen. And this one, you know, uh, be probably because infection was in the bone to begin with. You can see the bone has a bit of these unusual changes here at the top and on the side. It never really solidified that connection. And um, if there's enough wiggle and, you know, in metal, uh, it'll eventually give out and it'll break. And so unfortunately, at the time that this surgery was done, it was found that he did have an infection. So he had to have another type of surgery. And one other subtle thing that you can see is that every time we have to do these surgeries, unfortunately, we lose bone. We have to remove the end of the bone because we need to get to health, healthy, fresh bone that can accept these implants and become stable and solid once again. So the ratio of the amount of bone you have to the amount of metal you have starts to get, I would say, worse or just more metal to less bone as each one of these surgeries goes on. And that you know, just makes things more challenging. Recovery becomes difficult um, afterwards. And unfortunately, this young, this relative young guy, after about another several years, he, his infection returned. And you can see here his implant, unfortunately, became completely loose and moved all over the place. And he had to have even more surgeries. Um, unfortunately, and ironically enough, this young adult, even though he was able to fight cancer, get cured of his cancer, thank goodness, he ended up having to have an amputation because the infection was so difficult to control. It was impossible to control even after over a dozen surgeries to get rid of his infection in a year and a half of doing it, that he had to have an amputation to get rid of it because it started to threaten his life. Thankfully, he's doing great. He accepted his, you know, he accepted his amputation. He's a heavy laborer. He's back on the roofs of buildings, putting in, you know, roofing things. And again, an amputation for him is absolutely the right thing to do at this point. Um, so, you know, Sometimes, you know, there, there's a phrase we have in, in surgery and probably in medicine in general, maybe it's not just in medicine, everything I think comes from medicine because that's what I do every day, right? But maybe this phrase exists in every, every sort of profession. The enemy of good is better, but the enemy of great is good or good enough. Meaning if you don't, if you're happy to accept what is, current, what is the current standard, it, that's good. But you're also never gonna make great progress, right? But you also can get in over your head if you try to achieve too much too fast, perhaps, or in, too, in a not in an organized way to try to make something that is good even better, okay? And these are just some of the young kids that I've, that, you know, uh, just to show is actually the age and just sort of locations and everything else where these kind of things happen. So I really do believe that biology is the best way of, of reconstructing or putting somebody back together. I tell them, I often will joke with the parents that I try my best to try to put them back the way that they made them the first time around, but certainly I'm never going to be as good as, as uh, mom was, you know, making and, and growing that child. Um, but I try my best. And thankfully, biology is on our side in the sense that I don't have, thank God, I don't have to be too precise because once you set the stage, the human body is amazing and is able to do I say, make me look good or do things beyond what anybody probably thinks is capable in terms of healing. So what do we mean by bone regeneration? Ironically enough, bone is one of the only organs, one of the few organs in our body that when it heals, can heal completely without scar tissue. Our liver has an amazing potential to do that as well. Uh, just for any uh, art lovers out there, this is a famous sculpture of Prometheus, the Greek god, uh, the, he's not a god, he's a titan, which is a little bit different who tricked Zeus. And so Zeus uh, punished him by tying him to the top of Mount Olympus, I think it was, 
And every night eagles would come or ravens, I think, would come and would eat out his liver. And his liver would then grow back the next day and the ravens would come back again and do it. And I have no idea if the ancient Greeks somehow knew that the liver regenerated. It's one of the other organ systems in our body that can actually regenerate. Bone does it, I would say, even better than the liver does. So when you break your bone, whether it happens because you, you, know, you fall down and you fracture and whether you're one to 99, it heals. You have to put the pieces back together. But no matter what, even if you're the best surgeon in the world and whether you have surgery or a cast place to fix your broken bone, there's gonna be a small gap between the edges of the bone. I tell people it's like if you take a piece of wood and you break it, you put the pieces back together, you can get it pretty close, but you never can get it all the way back together. That microscopic little gap, the bone cells in that bone, they see that gap, they sense it and they crawl into it and they fill in the gap and they make bone to connect the one side to the other. And that's absolutely amazing. And when that happens properly, it is done without any scar tissue left behind. So you can have a totally fully strong, healthy bone, completely back to normal that you're allowed to use. You take x-rays a few years later and those scars go away. You don't even know someone broke a bone or in, I will say in this case, even had a humongous bone regenerative surgery. So the concept of regrowing bone has been around for a long time. I won't go into too much detail, but over a hundred years ago, people have been trying to do this. They understood that bone can heal. Um, there was a lot of really archaic, painful probably ways of doing this. Uh, thankfully, we've come a long way. And you know th these techniques essentially were they just tried to stretch people's bone out as much as they possibly could, which I imagine must have hurt terribly. It didn't work very well because the bone wouldn't heal under those circumstances. And it really wasn't until uh, this, general, this surgeon, Dr. Elizarov, you may have heard his name because he was very famous uh, for a long time, especially during the Cold War. Um, the story is kind of interesting, so I'll get into it really quick. Uh, back in the day, they, uh, in, in you know, uh, old times of Russia, the way that surgeons work, and back here, wasn't that different or everywhere around the world, one surgeon would essentially, uh, they, they were more general surgeons and they'd be in charge of an area of, of the country. And this surgeon, Dr. Lizarov, was in Kurgan, Siberia. So you can see how far away Kurgan, uh, Kurgan is from Moscow or St. Petersburg. It's really in the middle of nowhere. And he would tour around from one town to the other, taking care of whatever problems came up. He used to deliver babies and fix fractures and uh, you know, anything like general surgery kind of stuff that would come up. And, and he would apply these external fixator devices, which people were using pretty commonly to fix bones. And you can imagine the way it works is the bone's broken, you put the device on, you realign the bone using the device, and then the device holds the bone in place until the bone heals. But, but oftentimes they would use the device to squeeze the two ends of the bone together to encourage the bone to heal. What happened is one actually took two times for it to happen. One of the patients, two of the patients, turned the screws the wrong way. And instead of compressing the bone, they actually stretched the bone out. And it wasn't until the second time around that he saw this and he said, hmm, that's kind of interesting. He scratched his head and he said, I, that probably, that's kind of weird. I wonder I should look into this. And he ultimately dedicated his entire life to the study of distraction osteogenesis. And almost you know, 60 years ago, you know, figured out how this all works. He did a ton of studies on uh, well, dogs to begin with. They're very similar to us. And as we all know, dogs, well, those are, you know, we, we dogs, dogs, unfortunately, as much as we love dogs, they also get osteosarcomas at high rates like humans do. So a lot of studies for osteosarcoma are done in dogs. Sorry to all the animal lovers out there like myself. 
thankfully, we've advanced um, the this concept of distraction osteogenesis and the external fixators. You can see this is kind of a mock-up of, but the point is that you can use an external fixator anywhere on the entire body. Um, and you could do, so the versatility of this is tremendous. And the, it applies to what we do as well. So we can use this technique, whether we do an internal device or an external device to regrow bone really anywhere. But there are of course other limitations. So what happens essentially is you regrow bone. And this is an example and I have an updated picture of this patient. This is actually a woman who at the time was 62 and she loves to tell me to please put her in all of my talks because she wants people to know that it, it's not just for kids that it can work in adults and I think this is a great example. So this is her x-ray in, in the operating room where you can see there's a, a defect where the dashed line is. And after this process is done, you can see that the bone has been has filled in that defect, right, which is right down here at the bottom. Now over time that matures and it looks a lot better. And as I said, I have another x-ray coming up in terms of what that looks like. This technique has been used for a long time for lots of other things as you can see here, it's an exhaustive list. Um, usually used for complicated things. And so most often people would use this as a last resort. And part of me thinks, you know, that's like, uh, that's like sitting Tom Brady uh, on your bench until the fourth quarter. Sorry to use a sports analogy, you know, but I'm an orthopedic surgeon. So it's like, you know, it's like uh, sitting Tom Brady until the fourth quarter and say, well, let's let the other guy do it. And if we're losing, then we'll bring in Tom wait a minute, you know, you want to win the game the whole time. You don't want to put Tom in when it's, he's down by 21 points and he's still going to make an amazing comeback because he's Tom Brady to win the Super Bowl. But why do that? So that's sort of the change in mentality that we have had to overcome here in using this complicated but very powerful technique before using all of the other kind of techniques that people have been using for a long time. So again, you can, it's used in everything from little kids to adults, as you can see, in congenital problems, all the way to tumor problems, as you can see at the bottom. What are the pros and cons? So when it works, the huge advantage is that it's a grand slam. You really literally are recreating someone's bone. You're giving them back their own biological bone. You take all metal out. There's nothing left behind, but they, they themselves, which means that the bone turns into normal bone. It can, if it breaks, you, you treat it the same way you break any, you treat any other broken bone in their body. If it ever gets infected, you can fight infection exactly the same way you fight infection anywhere else. And the success rate is much, much higher. Um, there's no, probably one of the most important things that kids like is that there's no restrictions on what you can do. Once your bone is healed, you can run, you can jump. I have some pictures of kids jumping on trampolines and things here, which usually scare the heck out of us if someone has a metal implant in there, because you know we worry about that. You don't have to take a fibula, which sometimes we do. Um, and then last of all, it, it doesn't burn any bridges. What does this mean? I mean, I'm not, I'm not a pessimist. I am a, unfortunately an eternal optimist, but it means that if something were to go wrong and we all know things go wrong, right? Uh, for lots of different reasons, it doesn't burn any bridges, meaning you've not lost the attempt, you've not lost the ability to do other kinds of reconstructions. If you do this and it doesn't work or some other problem comes up, uh, recurrence, metastatic disease, or anything else that comes up, you can actually still do the other kinds of limb salvage surgery that I mentioned previously uh, relatively easily without a lot of, you know, it's a surgery and it's an intervention, but it still doesn't change anything about that. Um, and now the real question is in terms of, that's actually the goal. So the question mark there is, is showing that it show, has long-term uh, satisfaction. I'll show you that in a bit. What's the problem? It is a long recovery. 
longer than just the six to nine months of chemotherapy that you know, however you want to count it after surgery or not longer than just chemotherapy it's longer than regular you know reconstructions um there is a lot of follow-up required you have to come and see me every two weeks during all of this process and every month for about two years um a lot of things that come up and then of course the problem is we have to we're trying to grow bone while chemotherapy is trying to kill everything that's growing obviously focusing on the cancer Thankfully, we can overcome that. Here's an example of a young, of a 10-year-old boy who has a, uh, it's actually, this one's a chondrosarcoma, and I'll show you some other ones in a bit of osteosarcoma specifically. Um, but this is sort of how we plan things out or how we think about this. So you can see the tumor extends from the top of the green arrow to the bottom of the green arrow here. So we have to cut out the bone, just like always, we need to make sure we remove the entire tumor and with a good healthy margin, meaning we don't come too close to it, as we all know. Um, and then essentially you'll see, so we have a, a defect like this and we have to fill in that defect somehow. So how do we do that? Well, sometimes we have to be creative and we might take a small segment of bone, for example, make a cut in this, in the bottom part of the bone is normal and healthy. So we can move it up to the top because up here at the top, there's a lot of muscles that connect to this portion of the bone and we wanna restore those muscle connections. So we move a segment of bone all the way up to the top. We reattach those muscles and then we go on with the bone regeneration part where we're going to take a segment of bone from down here and we're going to slowly bring it up to fill in the gap and that's how we make the bone so here's again that example where we set the stage as you can see here um, we put the piece up the, I, the blue arrow here is to show you what happens to this area again thankfully i don't do any of this i just rely on the person's body ability to heal and you'll see that in that area, the person starts to, the reattachments even get thicker and stronger on their own. So the body knows what's supposed to happen in all of these areas. It doesn't just regrow bone where we're trying to regrow, it regrows bone where it needs to. And so as you can see, this was an earlier surgery with the external fixator. A lot of times we do this with internal devices now, so we don't have those big external devices. And I will show some of that. And we slowly but certainly use these cable devices that are attached to the external device. And we literally pull the bone from the bottom up to the top, or if we have to, from the top to the bottom, or if we have to, from the top and the bottom towards the middle. You really can be quite creative, so to speak, and work with what you have, which I think is really important because we're not, you can, you're not limited by X, Y, or Z certain numbers. You're kind of limited by, again, location, but you're also limited by your creativity in some sense. So, we call this double level, meaning there are two segments that are moving in parallel. And the bone transport is what we call it when you're literally transporting the bone from one spot within the leg or the arm to another spot. You're literally moving it along like the rails on a car, on a train car. And you can see slowly but certainly, and you can't do this very quickly, unfortunately, because if you go too fast and the bone doesn't grow. The way it works is we trick the body into thinking that this is a fracture. So in the beginning, you see we cut the bone, but the segments are sitting there right next to each other. And slowly, but certainly, then we move the two pieces apart. Once the body's had a chance to start the healing process, those bone cells that we talked about earlier, they see that little gap and they jump in to fill in the gap and do their job. And then we pull the bone apart a millimeter a day at, on average, sometimes slower, sometimes a little bit faster. And those bone cells, they see that gap and say, oh, that's not supposed to be there. Let's jump in and fill in the gap. And so they fill in the gap. And then the next day we stretch it again. They wake up and oh, the gap is back and they jump in and they just keep doing it. And they'll keep going and going and going and going until it's off the screen, right? And we can literally do 
Well, there's no limit to how much can be done. There are some patients that I've done over 30 centimeters of bone regrowth, almost their entire femur or an entire tibia. It just takes a really long time. And that's a really important part that everybody has to know. So I, th this is here because people, a lot of times people think, oh, the bone regrows in this big gap that you created. It's not, they, it regrows back here, like the wake of a boat. That's where the bone grows. And so again, these pieces of bone are really just like a sponge. And they're, uh, they're just the biology is move, living in those pieces of bone. And as they move to the top, then the, they reattach to the top. And then it becomes a, a, you know, a connected bone. And then over time, it becomes a thicker, stronger bone. So that blue arrow you see there, that's to show you if the beginning of this, there was nothing up here that if I reattached the muscles to that. But the body knows there's something there supposed there's supposed to be something there called a lesser trochanter. That lesser trochanter is where the iliopsoas muscle connects. So I put the muscle back to that area and the body says, you know what, I'm going to make it a good, strong connection because that's what it needs. And so it does that. And that is, to me, that is absolutely phenomenal, like mind-blowingly cool and phenomenal, for lack of a better term. So again, after you complete this, then you can wait and you let the bone fill in and get thicker and stronger. You see how that's, the bone in there is growing and thickening, getting stronger and stronger over time. Ultimately, we usually take the external device off once everything is sort of moved into position because it's a lot easier to live with a, you know, a piece of metal on the inside. Once the bone fully heals, here we go. Once the bone fully heals, then we take the metal on the plate out. And you can see this young kid, he's back to playing soccer. This is the same kid in the beginning. You know, and you'll see here at the end, he makes a great jump on his right leg to almost hit the ex exit sign, but he doesn't make it. He, every time he comes back to my office, he keeps trying, he's getting taller. He will eventually knock that thing off. So this is what we call the regenerate. You know, this is, I won't believe this too much, but this is the, the regenerated or regrown bone. And, you know, we have how we look at this, we measure this, this is how we sort of look at that essentially to see how it's slowly filling in. We, again, we can't go too fast because then the bone doesn't grow. And we can't go too slow because if the bone heals too quickly, then we can't pull it apart. So it has to be somewhat like a Play-Doh-like consistency. It has to be somewhere in the middle, sort of soft for us to be able to work with it or malleable. I'm, I want to show a little bit about this. And I, I think if I have a moment, I'll tell a funny, uh, hopefully an embarrassing, but funny story about myself. When I was a, a resident and, at Columbia and I first learned about distraction osteogenesis and I thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever heard of in all the medical school and residency, uh, I didn't even know it was possible. I went through what I thought was a really good medical school and nobody ever taught me anything about it. You know, I went through four years of residency at Columbia again, and nobody ever, it wasn't until my last year that I came across this thing and I just became fascinated by it. And um, I went to, uh, I knew I was gonna do oncology and that was set. And then this came into my brain and I thought I've got the best idea in the world. I'm gonna do, use this bone regrowing thing to regrow bone in patients who get their bone taken out. It's gonna be awesome. And I remember, and so I, I said, I started signing up for these fellowships to do this limb lengthening and bone regrowth stuff. And I remember going to my first interview with, uh, and for, for the fellowship position. And I tell them, I tell exactly what I just said. I'm obviously, I'm excited about it. I'm an excitable person. And the, the attending sitting there interviewing me says, uh, so I, I see you've probably, you, you know, knowing all about this, I'm sure you've, you've, you've read my textbook, right? chapter 25 in my textbook that talks all about this. And he, I guess he, he could tell that I, a blank stare. I hadn't read chapter 25 of his textbook. I had no idea that it was about all of this. And it was, and he goes, wait a minute. Are you 
looking at me like that because you didn't know I had a textbook or because you hadn't read chapter 25? And I had to admit that it was both. <laughs> so I thought I had come up with a very novel concept of this whole bone regeneration stuff, only to find out like most things in life, I did not. Somebody had already thought about this many, many years ago, thankfully. And the person who thought about this is Dr. Suchia in uh, Japan. And he is somebody who I can say, thankfully, is now a mentor and a friend. I went, I've been to Japan to learn from him. He's in Kanazawa. Um, and he has shown now for, he's been doing this now for over 25 years, that this technique works and it works really well. Um, and he is, as you can see in that graph, the most important thing is if you look at the outcome, functional outcome over time, it stays at 95 plus percent, 91 percent, excuse me, or better. It doesn't tail off the exact opposite of what the metal implants do, unfortunately, which is they get worse over time because of the wear. So this only inspired me further to say, this is great. This, this just proves, thankfully, someone's already done all the hard work and the legwork and has proved that what I think works actually does work. Now I just get to go and do it. Um, and you can see here, uh, he has set out a huge series of, of work to show how this is, how he was able to do this and prove that it works and in what types of surgeries it can work. Um, you know, so here at MSK, we've done this uh, for, before I came here, they've done this for a few years and sort of intermittently. And you can see over the course of about 10 years, they've done about 20 patients. Now I've been here for seven years and we've done over a hundred patients with this type of, with this technique. So, you know, about, you know, about 15 or so patients a year. I wish I could offer it to every single patient that comes in the door, but I can't. And I'll talk, we can talk a little bit about why it doesn't work for everybody. So here's, the, here's that information, as you can see here, the average, obviously the most two common ones are an osteosarcoma and Ewing sarcoma. Um, I, I, you know, I, obviously I realize for, for uh, MIB and osteobites, it's much more focused on osteosarcoma, but I, hopefully for this specific talk, you guys, you know, the, the surgery part of it is similar in all of these. The difference might be in some of them, you don't need to do chemotherapy, obviously. So, Again, we've now done it in over 100 patients over the course of the last seven years in all sorts of settings, whether it's been uh, for the initial resection or it's been almost about 40% uh, well, of my patients are actually after other types of reconstructions have failed, whether it's a metal or an allograft, and now we have to sort of you know, start up again and fix things. And so we're, again, able to use, to bring in Tom Brady here in the third quarter and the fourth quarter and use this technique to fix it. Is regeneration possible in the sacrum around S1 after resection of a tumor? Um, they're saying that uh, their current surgeon is talking of removing all of S1, replacing some bone with part of the femur, um, and their daughter had rhabdomyosarcoma and relapsed with osteo a couple months ago. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, the the I, I, I mean, as I showed you earlier, that external that that uh, mimic skeleton of external fixation um, shows uh, that the external fixator can be applied to anywhere, and it can be done to the sacrum and to the spine, and it's been done. Uh, I myself have honestly never done it um, because the difficulty with sacral surgery and the limiting you know the limits are not so much actually the reconstruction type of stuff. It's more the, the limitations are oftentimes with the nerve function and the other aspects to sacral surgery and that kind of thing, more so than the bone. 
in the lower spine and the sacrum, a lot of times they can do really good reconstructions with biologic, like as I think was mentioned by this person where they take a piece of femur and they can transplant it over and that is alive typically, or it can be taken alive and then it heals really well. Uh, but it can be done literally anywhere in the body, thankfully. So this is a, a young boy who is now several years ago, but this he had, um, you can see on his left leg, he has an external fixator. And I, as I mentioned, we do now, we do this with internal devices. Um, but you can see while he has external fixator on, even though, yeah, he has these, folks have to endure these devices for a long time, you can be very functional. So you can put your full body weight on these devices. You can do sports and be active. This is still during PT. Um, this is, you know, so he's able to do stuff and you can see, there you go. He stops the ball with the left foot, the side that has the frame on it, and he can kick with that side as well. <laughs> he's just happy because he scores a goal. And then this is him a few years later now. Um, and, you know, I would challenge you, if you hadn't seen the leg that had the external fixer on, be challenged to see which is the side that was with the external fixer on. The, the, the point of showing that is really that the function can be excellent. Um, it, although it does take time and it's challenging, it's, I think it often, you know, the, the hardest part is, it, you know, explaining that it's worth it and why it's worth it and how it becomes worth it for patients when it's possible to do. Yeah, Dr. Prince, I have a question again from the chat. So uh, it's again, a more specific case about a 15 year old boy who had a failed limb salvage surgery in the humerus and wants to know if um, this regenerative type surgery can be done as an after fact of, you know, a, a failed first, and then we can expand upon that. And, you know, if so, what, what percent would you say, you know, in your, um, you know, cases, it's a first time attempt versus, you know, a secondary fix up. Sure. So I think I'm going to go back to, I'm stealing the screen again here, but uh, you know, the next slide that happened, it was going to come up was this slide showing exactly that situation. I have no, obviously with the, the person who's on the chat, I don't know what kind of reconstruction they had initially. It, in the beginning, it was probably 75 to 90% of my patients were patients that came to me after other types of reconstructions had failed. Um, and you know, we were able to do this. And this, again, this is an example of a young girl uh, who had yeah, Ewing sarcoma specifically, and she had this, you know, kind of failure, which is an allograft sitting in the middle there. The allograft doesn't heal. The plate eventually fails. And, you know, we have to figure out what to do. And nowadays, we almost always do this with internal devices. But you can see that we can use the external device to, once again, slowly but steadily regrow the bone. You can make new bone. The bone heals fully. To the point that uh, there, you know, there's a slight bit of an irregularity down here where the bone met up, but other, over time that will actually blend in, and you won't even be able to tell which area of the bone the bone was regrown in and where the bone was, you know, original. So up here at the top, for example, where you see once upon a time or during this process it was kind of thin and it wasn't full of solid calcium, but as time passes and the, I encourage people to use their arms the bone fills in fully and it becomes a totally solid thing. She's able to play volleyball. I, there's a video of her playing volleyball in this with this arm, thankfully. And the other aspect of it, if, if we're, everything works well, you can see that her growth plate is not affected by this. So we're able to leave, do this in a way that doesn't mess with her own growth. And she's able to then let, you know, we, we don't inhibit that her own growth continues on in addition to the growth that we're sort of doing through the middle. Over time, the ratio is a bit inverted now. Now, most of the patients that I take care of are 
primary reconstructions, meaning that just right at the time that the surgery, that, that sorry, that we do surgery for resection, uh, either whether it's with my partners or you know myself and I doing that, depending on the different circumstances, uh, we do the reconstruction up front now. Uh, but I still get a number of patients referred to me for these types of what we call secondary reconstructions. Um, and oftentimes it's, you know, the, the, when, you know, other attempts have failed, it's not like, oh, well, one, one, we tried once and it didn't work. You know, usually it's people have, have had, you know, multiple bone grafts or multiple procedures to try to reinforce the connection and get something to heal or, or an infection set in at some point and that kind of stuff. And so, you know, a lot of times it's, it can be really challenging and it, you know, becomes a, a big process for the patient. But it, even like, you know, this young girl shows, I think it's absolutely worth it um, in that sense. Just because just it's hard doesn't mean we shouldn't do it, right? Uh, I presume this only works when a joint is not involved. So that's a great question, uh, right? I can't read, nobody around the world, as far as I know anywhere can regrow cartilage. Um, we can regrow bone, but nobody can regrow cartilage. They can do some cartilage regrowth in a lab, um, but not the same thing. You can't take it out of the lab and then put it into someone's body. What we have done more than anything, and I, I, got, I wanna show one more picture because the difference is that traditionally, oftentimes, if you didn't have a way of preserving or utilizing very small segments of bone, like uh, the knee joint or the hip joint, then there wasn't a reason to preserve it. And so this example, for example, this is the ankle and I showed this one before, you know, this is a, a one centimeter segment of bone at the bottom. So it, it, with most ways of reconstructing, it can be whether you use an allograft or something else like that, the success of this, uh, getting an allograft to work in that situation is very, very tough because you don't have a lot of bone to hold on to. With this process, you don't need a lot of bone. The bone really is just a temporary sort of substitute to bring the biology in. Once the biology comes in, the body's gonna heal that segment on its own and it's gonna do it. So we push the envelope now in terms of keeping segments of bone that in the past we would not have otherwise kept, not because we are cutting it closer, quote unquote, to the cancer or to the tumor, but because in the past, if you had a segment of bone like this, there might not have been a good way to put things back together that would have been a good functional result for the person, right? So it's one thing if I can do it, but it has to result in a good function. So, you know, this example, for example, this woman, uh, this is her, and I want to show this because she's, again, she's skiing, and that's probably the hardest stress you can put on your tibia because you literally are putting all of that weight on the front of the, you know, of the shin. Um, and this is her x-ray after growing, and I want to show that. So I, I put the bone here, and I, I often say I'm not perfect. I can't be, obviously. I put the bone here. But in reality, the body knows that it doesn't need the bone towards the front. It really wants that bone more towards the back. And so over time, you see, that's where I shifted it. The bone literally adds more bone to the back of the, on its own, adds more calcium and bone to the back. And it makes the mechanical alignment of the bone where it's supposed to be. So I don't have to be spot on to the millimeter to the degree, I try, but I, you know, I can't realistically speaking, but I try my best, but thankfully the, I have the body to help me, as I said, not only make me look good, but make the patient's function even better and long lasting. So again, I think the, the human body is absolutely fascinating in that way. Uh, for big defects, do you change the external fixator through treatment or does it remain the same from the initial surgery? So it depends when, uh, 
it, that becomes a decision that we make uh, with, the, with the patient and the family because, as I said, most of the time now, because the, the biggest problem with the external fixator was the risk of infection because you have these pins sticking out. And even though we can keep the infection under control because, again, there's no metal in there, there's the pins and that kind of stuff, but there's no metal that stays behind, our ability to get eradicate those infections is really good over time. We now generally use internal devices. So there's an internal telescoping rod that is, does almost what the external fixator does. The limitation is that it can only do a certain amount with each fell swoop, so to, so to speak. The external fixator, on the other hand, there's no limit to how much you can do with the external fixator. So if you have a very large defect, it's a conversation that we have with the family about deciding, would you like to go through one surgery and then use an external fixator and use that the entire time and not have to have any other surgeries until the external fixator is ready to come off? Or would you rather do the internal device, which is going to require probably two or three other sort of intermediate or medium-sized surgeries, as I say, to be able to each time sort of reset the device, you know, and then keep sort of pushing the bone, you know, uh, essentially eight centimeters at a time. So each of these devices comes with either a five or an eight centimeter length. So if you have a 23 centimeter, 24 centimeter defect, you have to reset this device two times after the first surgery, which means you need two surgeries just to do that. So it really becomes a decision. And, and a lot of it is things that we make decisions based off of how the patient's tolerating their chemotherapy. Folks who have a lot of mucositis or problems with uh, uh, you know, their inflammation, at, like, probably most people know what that is, but uh, mucositis as a result of chemo, they're more likely to get um, problems with skin infections and that kind of thing with the external fixator. So we try to, you know, you, we, we recommend often internal fixation for those. If on the other hand, they really haven't had any problems, then we will go with an external fixator, but it, we, it's a conversation. It's not one or the other oftentimes. And then I have one more from that same person is, um, can you compensate for a radiated growth plate um, by the surgery with more growth in the middle? Yes. The short answer is yes. We're low on time, but the short answer is yes. And that's one of the most common things that we do. And I don't, uh, that's not included in this, but yeah, as a result of either surgery or radiation um, or even just getting chemo to an air to, you know, as a young child can inhibit growth. Uh, plus these tumors, they mess with the growth in other ways. They steal the blood supply from the physis during the normal growth, especially if it happens in very young kids. So we're often dealing with limb length discrepancies as a result. And thankfully this technique works really well for that. That's what it was sort of designed for initially. So when we, you know, we sort of cheat it or steal it to use it for this, but yes, the short answer is, I didn't give a short answer. The short answer is yes, it works really well for that. Uh, so is anyone else in the US or, you know, the greater globe doing this type of um, orthopedic oncology focused bone regeneration? That's a great question. There's not a lot of us doing it, uh, mainly because it does both of these, you know, uh, both of them require very specialized training and knowledge, right? Yeah, I had to do both fellowships to be able to learn how to do this stuff. Um, and then even when I went down to Florida, I would say that was probably, a, I learned more there in all of these types of surgeries, you know, uh, than I probably would have anywhere else in that sense. And then coming back to Memorial, again, I, I, I feel like I'm a sponge. I just suck, you know, the knowledge out of everybody else around me. Um, there are, unfortunately, the short answer is there's not a lot of people doing it combined. There are a lot of people, there are some people doing it, like we're collaborating with, um, you know, the oncology surgeon collaborating with a deformity surgeon together to do it. And I think that's great because I think each one of them brings the knowledge to it. I have a lot of colleagues reach out to me and I try to give advice along the way and, hey, you know, problems that can come up. And um, 
you know, so there are, there's nobody else, as far as I know, sort of formally doing it in the way that we are here at Memorial, where we have sort of a dedicated team to do this. Uh, obviously, Dr. Suchia in Japan is still doing this. He's doing a lot of it. Uh, and there's a few people in, in the Netherlands, one person in the Netherlands who does it as a team as well. Thank you. Yeah, one day there will be the uh, Dr. Prince certificate in bone regeneration. <laughs> uh, so final question here from the chat. Uh, a lot of your presentation had to do with long bones in the body, but have you seen cases uh, where the pelvis was involved or other, you know, not perfectly long straight bones in the body? Yeah, good question. So yeah, we, absolutely. I've done these, I've done lengthenings like this and procedures like this in the pelvic bone, uh, and it does work well. It's complicated, but it does work. You almost you have to use the external device for that. Again, uh, something that we use typically. Um, we can do it in the foot and in like smaller bones as well, uh, but we can do it in the pelvis. I think that's probably the next most common thing. In the scapula, it's rarely indicated. Uh, it just is no, uh, there isn't enough bone there to sort of do this. Um, and in smaller bones like the clavicle or things like that, again, there's not a lot of reason to do it at all. Um, so the, the areas that where I would say the next cutting edge or where you're, hopefully we'll start to see, I can come back in five years and show similar results is where my partners and I are doing it in the, in the lower spine and in the sacrum and pelvis. Uh, but that's a teaser, hopefully for future. You can have me back on osteobites in a few years. Um, I, ha I have a question. Um, <laughs> that external fixator, what if you bump it? I, I'm um, cringing watching that boy with the <laughs> soccer ball, like waiting for the ball to like whack that thing. And I'm like, oh. It's, you know, it's funny. And that's a very, very common question. And most people think that having this thing on or, or even the bone regrowth process, they say that must hurt. It doesn't hurt. You're moving the bone. Every time you make an adjustment, you're moving it a quarter of a millimeter each time. So you're moving at the thickness of like seven sheets of paper, a tiny amount. The external fixator, so that part doesn't hurt. The stretching of the bone doesn't hurt, though it sounds like it, you're putting somebody on the rack. The external fixator, similarly, it's screwed into the bone. So it is really, really solid and has having, I'll, I'll admit, having had one of these in my arm, uh, you can bump it against the wall. You can, people can grab you by it and shake you by it. You can go to college with it and go to parties and people will mess with you, but it doesn't hurt. Oh my God. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Thanks for saying that. Cause I'm, I've been, you know, I, I rem with limb salvage, right? Anybody would get near my leg and be like, whoa. whoa, whoa. <laughs> you know? I mean, the surgery hurts, but once it's on, once it's settled, once, you know, it's not, yeah. you know, then, then it does not hurt. I mean, you know, usually it shouldn't under normal circumstances. Right. Well, it doesn't differ from limb salvage in that it, it hurts. It hurts, right. <laughs> it hurts. Um, okay, thanks for going over with us. I know you've got a dash to surgery, so I will wrap up quickly by saying, um, first, I have to tell you, our osteosarcoma resource packets are ready, so um, you should get yours. They're free. It's for uh, institutions and individuals who are dealing with osteosarcoma patients or um, people in your family. It contains the book and it also contains resources from our partners at Osteosarcoma Institute, Osteosarcoma Project and the Amputee Coalition. Um, so get yours. Um, next week we have uh, Dr. Scott Sauer on board Osteobites. He'll be talking about preventing osteosarcoma lethal recurrence by targeting disseminated tumor cells. Hope you'll join us for that. And um, I know, wouldn't that be good? Uh, so th <laughs> thanks for joining us today. 
um, especially thanks to our guest, Dr. Prince, who fit us in between surgeries on OR day. Um, really appreciate you sharing your time with us. And, um, and really, thanks for sharing um, your expertise on this astonishing topic. It's really um, compelling and interesting and innovative and wonderful. Um, thanks to our panelists, Brandon and Annika, and we'll see you next week. Can I say one thank you? Yeah. Thank you to all the patients and the families who trust not just me, but trust all the doctors uh, in taking care of their loved ones. And, and then I will say to those who do, to, you know, who I do take care of personally, thanks for the trust because I realize it's not easy to travel around or come in and uh, have this done and to deal with me and everything else for a year after year. So, uh, you know, we don't take that. I don't think anybody that you probably have on this panel takes that level of trust lightly, you know, uh, so thank you very much uh, for everything that you do. I hope, I, I hope you feel that what we do, we do it as carefully and as responsibly as we possibly can. I believe, I believe. Thanks, Dr. Prince. <laughs> thank you, Dr. Prince. Thanks, guys. Be sure and subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can view our library of this and all Osteobytes topics and rockstar speakers. You can also listen to Osteobytes via podcast wherever you get your podcast.